You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. It's really good to see each one of you. Just love this church and I'm very thankful every time the Lord allows me to come here and to open the word with you or we do a little seminar or something like that. And I trust that you've come to strap yourself in because we have a very challenging but wonderful passage, Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be, if you open your Bibles to Galatians 3, and in Galatians 3, we're looking at the aspect of why salvation is based on one gospel of whose we are, uh, therefore what he's done, and what we cannot do for ourselves. And that's a critical understanding, because when you look at Galatians, there are six chapters in Galatians, and it was one of the first books that Paul actually wrote to defend the faith. Chapter 1 and 2, his authentication, he's, he's uh, defending why he's the true apostle, and why his gospel is true. Chapter 3 and 4 is justification, how to be declared right before God, justification. And chapter 5 and 6 is sanctification, how we grow in Jesus Christ. So in chapter 3 is all the Old Testament put into one chapter. So that's 4,000 years and 40 minutes. We can do this. We really can. Um, we're going to make, it's, it took me about two, three months just to work through this passage. I'm going to bring it down to ground zero here. But let's first open God's word to Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read in verse 1 to the end of the chapter. Galatians 3 verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness... Know then that it is those who are faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed among, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the Mosaic law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. 
Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So this is what I mean. The law came, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put into place through the angels by an intermediary. And now as an intermediary uh, implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Well, certainly not. For if law had been given that, sorry, if the law had been given that could be give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisons everything under sin, so that the promise of faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you have were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, or free, neither male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are, in, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, is according to the promise. Gracious Father, we ask that you open this text to us. You make it simple to, to understand, and that, Father, the, the, our believers and myself would leave here with a deeper sense of knowing that Faith comes by hearing and hearing your word. We are justified by faith, not of works. Works comes afterwards to show that we're a believer. But to come to Christ, it means we come justified by faith in your word. So please help us as we work through this passage in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. So I found in counseling and in life and in coaching that there are four things if you, if you, uh, you need to understand, four issues if you're going to impact or open up a text or open up an issue with people. The first is to expose the issue, to lay it bare, so to speak. The second is to examine the issue. The third is to explain the issue, and the fourth is to engage it. And that's what we're going to do here with this text this morning. We are answering a big question that I have here. Salvation is based only on one gospel as to whose we are, not just who we are, whose we are, what he's done, and what we cannot do for ourselves. So remember, we're talking about how do we come to God through Jesus Christ. We're not talking about good works and that shows we're a Christian, etc. We're talking about how did the Old Testament believer, how do we come to God? And it's by, by justified by faith. That's key. It's by faith. And so the question we want to ask this morning is a critical one. How do we know that there's only one gospel? And that it's only based on whose we are and what he has done for us, not what we do for ourselves. 
Well, the first is we're going to give a very brief background from Adam to uh, Moses to explain what Paul is actually saying in the Old Testament. You need a little background. So the first thing we need to realize is that why did God create Adam in, the, in Genesis? He created him to represent his purposes, to resemble his character, and to reflect his glory. That's why God created Adam and Eve, to represent him. So what happened? Well, Satan comes along, and the first thing he does is challenge what? God's word. First thing he does. Did God say in Genesis 3? And notice what he's doing there. He's saying you really cannot trust God with that which matters most. He's saying that God, God is not good. He's holding something back, and you, Eve, you, Adam, need to figure it out yourself. That's been a paradigm throughout all of life. You can't trust God. He's not good, and you need to figure it out yourself. So what was it? They took the, the, the fruit, they ate it, and a curse came on them. But, but it's interesting. They thought they could live life without, without reference to God, but they couldn't. And what we find in Genesis 3.15 is the first mention of the gospel. It's called, which theologians call the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first mention of the gospel that Satan would try to crush uh, uh, and, uh, the heel of Jesus, but Jesus would crush his head. And notice what happens right after that. God kills an animal and he clothes Adam and Eve. Notice there's blood in that covenant. If God doesn't clothe us, we're not clothed. And he clothes them, strips the fig leaves off, and he clothes them. And then Genesis 3 to 11 teaches us very clearly that we, we cannot figure it out on our own. The whole world's a mess. Every inclination of the thoughts of the heart become destructive and evil in Genesis 6-5, Genesis 8-21. Every inclination after the flood of the thoughts of the heart of human beings becomes deceitful. It brings sin and destruction. So we need a savior. We need a blessing. God needs to choose someone else. So who does he choose? Abraham. Not because of anything good he did, but he chooses him and said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And, and through, all, through you, every nation will be blessed. So he became God's representative. And so what do we find? Well, how do I know I, I'm going to be a representative, God, he asked him. I, I'm, I'm, I'm old. I'm like 100 years old. He said, you will have a descendant. In Genesis 15, he said, well, how do I know that's going to be true? He says, take a heifer, a bull, Take a ram, take a goat, take a turtle dove, take a pigeon. I want you to cut them in half. See? Blood. Cut them in half. I want you to lay one them in a row this way, a row this side, and we're going to walk through it. That's what the word covenant means, to cut a covenant. It's always through sacrifice. Someone has to be substituted, and that's what he does. But this time he goes, Abraham, and he makes him fall into a deep sleep, and God walks through the pieces. So he guarantees, he guarantees the covenant. No matter what you do, I've walked through the pieces. I guarantee you, you will be blessed. And your people and your nation will bless every other, other people. And God makes sure that happens. But Abraham, you're going to have to wait 400 years. I'm going to take your people and put them into boarding school in Egypt. And then I'm going to come and redeem them. So then God raises up Moses. And God raises up a man by the name of Moses and God hears the groaning in Exodus 2.23, and he says to Moses, Moses, in, Mo in, in Exodus 6, God says to him, I am Yahweh, <laughs> yeah. I am the one who's self-existent. 
I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and, and, and I am the God Almighty. My name is the Lord. I have established my covenant with them. I have remembered my covenant. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egypt, Egyptians. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you and you will be my people and I will be your God. I am the Lord your God. I have sworn this covenant to Abraham. So it's based upon God's word, not on what they did. They actually had left the Lord in some ways. And then once again, blood is applied. How do we know that? Exodus 12. You to kill a lamb and you to put the blood in the door frames and the lentil and I will pass over. That's what the whole Passover thing is. I will pass over. The death angel will pass over. And those who believe my word and stay in that home and have put the blood and applied the blood will be saved and redeemed. And those who did, they all raised up. They go through the Red Sea. It parts. They go to the Mount Sinai where they get the law. And God says this just before he gives the law. If you fully obey me and keep my covenant then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were to resemble God. They were to reflect God. They were to uh, represent God, just like God had with Ab Adam, just with, Ab uh, with Abraham, and now with as a nation, they were to do that. Thanks be to God. And then he gives them the word, the law. How should a holy nation live before a holy God? Here's some dietary uh, requirements, some worship requirements, some ceremony requirements, etc. You are to do them. And they said they would. But they failed. They failed. And what we find in Psalm 81, 10 to 13, which summarizes their failure. For I, the Lord, your God, I was the one who rescued you out of Egypt. Open your mouth wide that I may fill you with good things. But no, my people would not listen. Israel did not want me around. So I let them follow their own stubborn desires, living according to their own ideas. Oh, that my people would have listened to me. Psalm 81, 10 to 13. So he gives them over to their desires. You want to do it your way? You want to follow your own eyes? Here's what happens. And he gives them over. And throughout the Old Testament, we see everything is pointing to whom? Jesus Christ. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said, you will raise up a prophet better than me. In 2 Samuel 7, when he gives the covenant to David, he said, you're going to have a king permanently one day on the throne. That will be King Jesus. But Isaiah 53, you're going to need a savior. Though we like sheep have gone astray, each to his own way, the Lord has laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. And we find that though he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief, we turned our backs on him. But it was God's will to crush Jesus. And he was a lamb led uh, to the slaughter. And that's the Savior we have. Did Jesus know that? Well, the book of Matthew, it says, you'll call him Emmanuel, for he, God with us, and he will save his people from his sins. John looked at Jesus in John 1.29 and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus himself, when he's explaining, after he died, he meets two guys on a road on Emmaus. And he says, and he say, well, are you the Jesus? Who are you? He says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what the scriptures said about him. 
See, Jesus knew the entire Old Testament was pointing to him. And remember what he said in John 10, 11? I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. In verse 18, no one, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily and I raise it up again. That's the Savior you and I have. Jesus knew that he would die. And so we see the Old Testament into the Gospels points to this. So we can see exposed for us a beautiful picture that Jesus is who the Old Testament said he would be. Secondly, we can examine, we only know there's one gospel because we can examine what the Galatian believers experienced by what? By looking at the collaboration of the Godhead. It's always God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, thanks be to God. God designed creation, the Spirit hovers over creation, and Jesus makes it happen. Same with salvation. Notice what we see. We can examine the experience of the cross of Christ. It was always about the cross of Christ. In Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross, Paul said, of the Lord Jesus Christ, for which I have been crucified and I to the world. See, the cross was not just a nice symbol. It was the reality of someone's life. Does that make sense? It wasn't just a symbol. And when you look in chapter 3, verse 1, the word crucified actually is in the perfect tense. What it means is what Jesus did on the cross was a once-for-all act that had ramifications and effect to the future. Also, in John 19.30, when Jesus died on the cross, what did he say? It is... It is what? That's also in the perfect tense. What I have done now on the cross will never need to be duplicated because it's a once-for-all act for all of you. Nothing can be added. Nothing can be added to your salvation except what I have done for you. And there's no other name given among men whereby someone may be saved in Acts 4.12 except the name of Jesus Christ. So we can examine the cross of Christ. We can also examine the Holy Spirit, the working of the Holy Spirit. In the book of um, Isaiah, uh, the, uh, verse 11, 1 and 2, we see there's a prophecy of Jesus where it says, out of the stump of Jesse. Not pruning, the stump. So there's just this stump there, and you would often think there was no hope, but out of the stump of Jesse, a shoot, a shoot will bring forth a branch, and its roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord, think of this, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of understanding, a spirit of counsel, a spirit of might, a spirit of knowledge, and a spirit of the fear of the Lord. All in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, during Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit comes upon and empowers Jesus. Jesus did nothing in and of himself. He relied upon the Holy Spirit, the working of the third uh, uh, person of the Godhead. And he quotes, in Luke 4.18, he quotes Isaiah 61. And he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The Lord has sent me to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, an opening of the prison of those who are bound, to open the eyes of those who are blind. And in verse 21, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He couldn't do it without God's Spirit. And that's why he said to the Galatians 
in Galatians 3.2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing by faith? Are you so foolish? You began by the Spirit. Are you now trying to perfect your salvation by flesh? See, we don't come to Christ by doing anything. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself, not of works, so that no one can boast. And yes, verse 10 says, but God has created us in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. But that's over here. Once we've come to Christ, we don't come to Christ by means of works. Thanks be to God for that, by the way. Because I don't know about you, but I'm inconsistent. I, I need a savior. And thirdly, we see that salvation is on what he has done and through us and, and in us, not of ourselves, by looking at God's plan. I'm only going to read one scripture here. In Acts 2, 22 and 24, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And this Jesus was delivered over to you, listen to this, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's plan. It was no, Jesus was never plan B. So faith is what? F-A-I-T-H. And that word is used 16 times in Galatians, faith. Forsaking all my agenda, I take him. I take him, I turn towards him. That's what faith is. That's where it starts. Works is something else. When we, we show that we're saved. But to be saved, it's all about him to be declared right before him. And so we've exposed the, the bigger picture of the Old Testament. We've uh, examined God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in salvation. And thirdly, there is only one gospel because we can explain our salvation by three interlinking perspectives. And verse 10 onwards, there's three interlinking perspectives that are critical for us to understand. And how do we know that? Well, first of all, because of Christ, the shame of the curse has been taken care of. What's a curse? A curse is something, is a consequence when we're exposed. It's God giving us over to what we asked for. That's what a curse is. It's the opposite of blessing. And I don't know about you, but shame, feeling exposed and wanting to hide, is the number one challenge of all sin. Shame is. We don't want people to know. That's why we never deal with it. That's why we come up with all of these different strategies so nobody will know us. Our number one goal when we've sinned is to do what? Hide. Well, well Craig, what's blaming? Hiding. What's scapegoating? Hiding. We hide. We run. We pretend something hasn't happened. We deny. We are in deceit. And yet, notice, those who rely on the works of the law are under this curse. Cursed is everyone who relies on the law. So how's the law helpful? Well, what the law does, according to Romans chapter 7, verse 7 to 12, and just so you know, this is being recorded. So I know you're getting this kind of the starter. It's a lot. You'll be able to go home and work this through. But Romans 7, 7 to 12 is very clear. The law is holy and righteous. I am unrighteous, saved, sold as a slave unto sin. So the law defines sin. And the very first thing one of the law tells us, do not covet. So what does coveting do? Well, it produces in me. If I read do not covet, 
I go, oh, goodness, I will never covet. No, it produces in me all kinds of covetous desire. It's like when I was a little kid, this guy next door who was a bit of a pain, but I was the worst pain, and he put there, do not walk on my lawn. Don't do that to a 13-year-old. Don't walk on your lawn. You're like Jim Carrey. You know, you just, yeah. And he would look at the window, and I would walk, look away, then he'd look. <laughs> and then again, I see don't walk on the lawn or don't touch the lawn. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to touch the lawn. That's how it goes. That's what the law did. Don't covet. Okay, I won't. Ooh. Look what they've got. Well, look what they've got. Look what they've got. That's what it does. It produces in me every desire to covet. It doesn't help. So we needed someone to take our shame. Well, as it says in, look at there, Galatians 3.10. Cursed is everyone who does what? Who does not abide by all that is written in the law. In James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails on one point becomes guilty of all. We have no hope. We can't do it. What's the point? Well, this is what it says, verse 13. But Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It was nothing we did. We couldn't do anything to become saved. That's so hard in North America. In our industrial world, since the uh, 17, 1800s, we've, we've produced, and that's fine. We've, you know, technology now, that's fine. But it's almost like we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. No, we can't. Not when it comes to salvation. We're done. And only when we can see that, then we can grow. And God can use our giftedness and our abilities. But to come to God, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. And he's the only one. And so we see that the shame has been taken care of. But also the covenant, there's a new covenant. Remember I talked about the old covenant? Well, listen to this in Jeremiah 31. This is what it says. Behold, the day is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. See, a lot of people think the new covenant is just something that God slapped on because he messed up the old. No, no. In the old, it says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand. Where? Out of Egypt. This covenant they broke. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on the tablets of their heart, and they will be, I will be their God, they will be my people. No longer will somebody have to tell his neighbor, know the Lord, for each one will know the Lord individually. Isn't that cool? That's the God we serve, because he knew it didn't work collectively, so he puts it within us through Jesus Christ our Lord, and makes a new covenant. In fact, Jesus said this, this is the new covenant which is purchased in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. That's why we have the Lord's table. It's the new covenant. And notice, who walked through the pieces? God. Who died on the cross? Jesus, for us. God became flesh and dwelt among us so we could have eternal life. And thirdly, we find that there's only one gospel through Christ who gives us clarity now that we can understand the role of the law. 
And it had two roles, a negative role and a positive role. The negative role in verses 21 to 23 is that it showed our sin. So the negative role, the law became a magnifying glass to identify where we sinned. It defined sin for us. That was its goal. It exposes sin. But when it identified it, what does it do? It imprisons us. It doesn't free us. You're caught. You're caught. It's like those games you used to play. You capture the flag and you go with these little flashlights. Pop! Gotcha! That's not a good illustration because I was very good at capture the flag and I was hardly ever caught because I did some weird things not to be caught. But it's a good illustration. The light's on you. The spotlight's on you. And does that free you when the spotlight's on you? Think of it in prison. They've got the big floodlights. Anybody trying to escape? Ba-doom. It doesn't make them free. It identifies that they're exposed. So that's the negative role. But here's the positive role. It became a guardian. We see in the scripture, verses 24 to 25, it became a guardian, a mentor. So then the law was our guardian until Christ. So the law helped us to see you're in jail, you're imprisoned, you need Jesus. That's a good thing. Well, how do I know I need Jesus? Study the text. The Old Testament often... In, in this culture, I don't know why, but often in Christian churches, oh, we don't worry about the Old Testament, we just look at the New. Well, that's like building a house and only having the roof. Who would ever do that? Well, let's just pull in the roof. Uh, not helpful. You've got to you lay the foundation, build the walls, then we'll put the roof on. You need the Old Testament. You need to understand what it says. And that's key, because it all points to Jesus. Listen to what Hebrews says. For Christ said... You do not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Why? Because in Jesus, look, I have come to do your will, Jesus said. He cancels the first covenant in order to make the second covenant um, in effect. For God, it is God's will for us that we be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all and for all time. Thanks be to God for that. And so we look at this and we go, so what does that do for us then? We've exposed the bigger picture of the Old Testament. We've examined the Godhead. We've seen the three interlinking uh, pieces there of how he died for the shame of the curse. He gave us a new covenant. And what the law does magnifies sin but points us to Jesus. So how does this help us? Well, we see in the rest of the passage we can engage one another with a deeper unity and collaboration. <laughs> when God created us, he didn't create us to be individualistic. He didn't create us to be isolated. He created us for community. How often have you gone to church and said, nobody said hello to me this morning? You ever said that? Well, instead of looking for friends, how, how about being a friend? How about finding someone? How about saying hello yourself? You see, we're so individualistic. Nobody said, as opposed to, I need to find people. But we're not programmed in the West to connect. We're programmed to insulate and isolate in our little mansions. That's what we are. It's true. But in Christ, we can engage one another for four reasons right here in the text. Number one, we've been baptized into Christ. We have one identity in Christ. The word baptism actually means to immerse to go under but it also means to identify so we have been immersed into one identity and we are also 
um, we have that identity with one another. He's placed us there. So when you stand in the tank uh, on, a, on a physical baptism, you're standing in the water saying, Christ uh, died for my sins, and it's him alone. Going under the water, you're saying, and, and just like um, he died and shed his blood, he took my sin into the grave, and I've died to my sin, and you're coming up out of the water. Remember, the water's not making you a Christian. The water is a symbol. You're coming out of the water, just like Jesus rose on the third day. I'm going to live a new life. That's what that means. But you've already been placed. Like the criminal on the cross, did he get baptized? No. But he was baptized into the Lord, into Christ. His identity was in Jesus. Second, this is exciting, in verse 27, we put on Christ. That is the word enduo, which means to sink into. We are clothed with Christ. We were naked. I don't care what the fashion world says. We're naked. There's no Lululemon in heaven. We're naked. And so he has to strip us down and he has to put Christ on us, his character. In identity, we can represent him. And being clothed in Christ, what can we do? Resemble him. So we now can, we have that identity to represent God and his purposes because we've received Christ. But now we are clothed in him, we can resemble his character. That's the beauty of it. Can you see how it comes together? And then thirdly, we have an exclusive unity because of Christ. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free. There is no male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. No one's above the other. Yes, there's functional subordination. So in marriage, there's a functional subordination. There's a functional subordination in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, he speaks of the Father and finishes his work, and the Spirit doesn't speak of himself, but speak of, the, of, of, of Jesus, a functional subordination. But there's an equality in the Godhead of deity, and in, a, let's say, a marriage, there's an there's a equality of dignity, but that's true of the church as well. There's different functions, but there's one. Do you get that? No one's above the other. We need one another, and we submit we come up under where we need to. So God is exalted. Christ is exalted. It's not about Craig Brannan. Who cares what Craig Brannan thinks? I hope no one. It's about him and his word and Christ. That's all that matters. Does that make sense? And then finally, praise the Lord, we now can all belong to Christ because we can identify with Abraham's offspring. So now we go all the way back to Genesis 12, and we can see that we are his offspring, just like the word said. So, why does this even matter? Well, it matters for a couple of reasons. Number one, it matters because we need to critically expose the whole scope of the Bible. You will only change, I will only change when you study, not just read, study the Bible. There's no other way. 99% of your problems and my problems will go away when we look at the Bible in its text. I guarantee you, because the Holy Spirit will open your eyes. And secondly, when we exp we're exposed that way, what do we see? That we cannot understand the Bible in its piecemeal. We must understand the Scripture in its context. What does the text actually say? All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching us what is right, for rebuking us when we're wrong, for correcting us to get right, 
to train us to stay right so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We need to be exposed in our sin and we need to expose the entirety of the Bible so we understand where we place in God's, um, God's family. Also, we need, to ex- we, need to ex- whoop, we need to examine our faith. You know, it's interesting. Every Lord's Supper, we get an opportunity. It says, examine yourself to see if you're off the faith. Isn't that true? Where are we? And that's okay. Each of you, some of you have been saved six months. Some of you have been saved six years. You know, it doesn't matter. The thing we always realize when we examine ourselves, that we are treated better than our sins deserve. And that I know I deserve hell. I do not deserve salvation. There's nothing in and of myself that I afforded that except what Christ did for us. And that's key. So when we examine ourselves, that's what happens. That faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Thirdly, we get to explain our faith to others because of what Christ has done for us. You know how many people are walking around in shame? They feel exposed every day that they don't matter. And I'm shocked how often believers do not share Jesus Christ. We should be praying every Monday morning, give me 10 people at least that I could plant the seed of the gospel with this week, Lord, in some way. It doesn't have to be a full-fledged presentation of the gospel. It might be something very simple that you start to build a relationship with someone. But the idea of sharing your faith, knowing that you're covered in the blood of Christ and acting that way, that's critical. And then lastly, we have to learn how to engage one another. To engage one another in authentic community. You know, it's interesting. It says in Acts that they koinonia, they fellowshiped. That had more than just having pot pie. The word koinonia means to share. To share what they had with others. It's actually a physical aspect of taking care of the physical needs of people in the congregation. You know, it's interesting. When Jesus comes again... It says that he separates the, the uh, goats from the sheep. And you know what the difference is? Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Isn't that interesting? You gave a cup of water. You visited someone in prison. Oh, yeah, they should be there. No, no, you go visit them. Or you take care of a need of the poor, the widow, the addicted, the afflicted. That's what we need to do. That is an explanation of faith. And you know what? The unsaved world, that moves them. You're visiting the poor. You're taking care of orphans. You're taking care of widows. You're... Why would you do that? Let me take you for a coffee and tell you. That's key. That's engaging. That's real. And that's what the Lord wants. May the Lord help us to live a gospel that's real, knowing whose we are, what he's done, and what we can't do for ourselves. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I thank you for the brothers and sisters here today, those searching I pray that we will realize once for all that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he has done, a relationship with you through the Son and by your Spirit convicting us that we live. Thank you for Galatians 3. Such a meaty passage, such a critical passage to realize that it's not by any works we've done, but we are redeemed because of Christ. Now, Lord, would you help us to live this gospel real in front of others? And not forcing it down their throat in a superior way, but in a way that lives Christ. So people would say, why are you different? And we could tell them because of what you've done in us and through us. May you be given the glory. And because of you, in you and through you are all things. And we give you thanks for this. And all God's people said,
Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.